Friday, March the 4th, and welcome back to Goodfellows, a Hoover Institution broadcast exploring social, economic, political, and in this case, geopolitical concerns. I'm Bill Whalen. I'm a Hoover Distinguished Policy Fellow. I'll be your moderator today. Glad to report that I'm joined, as always, by the stars of our show, three of my colleagues we jokingly refer to as the Goodfellows. That would be the historian Neil Ferguson, the economist John Cochran, the geostrategist Lieutenant General H.R. McMaster. They are Hoover Institution Senior Fellows all. So, gentlemen, we're going to do a truncated version of Goodfellows today because we're going to pick up the same topic in just a few days. And obviously, we're going to talk about Ukraine and the various ramifications. HR, let's start with you. I want to talk about the military side of the equation. We are all four of us children of the Cold War, during which we were taught to fear and revere the Russian fighting machine, uh, Russian military might. What we've seen in the Ukraine, though, suggests something different. Reports of uh, Russian soldiers who didn't know they were actually invading Ukraine, Russian soldiers who said they didn't want to fight, uh, stories of Russian machinery breaking down, questions of strategy, supply chains that don't work, uh, a shock and awe strategy that's now in day nine of fighting. Uh, HR, is the Russian military, is it sclerotic like other aspects of Russian society? What's going on here? Hey, Bill, it is sclerotic. And what you're talking about are, are really the human and and uh, and qualitative dimensions of combat effectiveness. And what I see are, are formations who are not well-trained. I mean, they're not conducting effective combined arms operations, especially in close combat, right? And uh, But, but you know, this is not to say they're not dangerous, because as we've seen from Kharkiv, they can still apply fires massively and indiscriminately. So I, I think what we've seen is, is a force that wasn't prepared for this because they thought it would be easy. They mm -hmm. thought that, that the Ukrainians would fold. Uh, they came into this operation with all the wrong assumptions and some of the critical competencies that make actually, you know, waging war pretty darn difficult. Uh, they, they looked at that they're they're very deficient on, and I would include logistics in that connection uh, as as well as uh, as well as combined arms and joint operations. The ability to apply, you know, firepower. Uh, across all domains, the aerospace domain and so forth, and to use artillery, and then to be able to maneuver effectively, conducting fire and maneuver. And of course, you know, what you're seeing is you know, they're lined up on roads uh, mm -hmm. in large measure because, you know, uh, Putin did Xi Jinping a solid, you know, and said, okay, hey, I'll, I'll de delay my, my, uh, my invasion to after the Olympics. Well, the ground thought. You know, and and so now they're they're dealing with this really difficult uh, uh, situation where you know how much of that combat power is usable when you're driving down a road. Well, maybe the first couple of tanks, and then the rest of it is not usable in terms of fire and maneuver. So they have some real tactical constraints. And now, Bill, I mean, once they get into to urban areas, I mean, that's the most difficult military problem you can face in close combat. So I I, I think they're not up to it, Bill, and I think they're going to fail if their effort is as as we saw yet, you know, just in, in recent days, you know, if, the, if their mission is to take over all of Ukraine and control it, I don't think there's any way that that happens. Mm -hmm. Do you think they, they fail? Um, they seem to be turning to World War II tactics to uh, unguided munitions, just destroy everything in your path. Um, can we count on the Ukrainians holding out and for how long if they turn to those kinds of tactics? Well, I mean, they'll fail at a horrible cost, a horrible cost inflicted on Russians, but especially on Ukrainians. And, and I think, you know, I think the, the analogy is, is, uh, is what they did in Chechnya, you know, in the mid 1990s and in 1999, especially when they well, met resistance in Chechnya and Grozny, uh, you know, 4,000 fighters, right. Who just had small arms, essentially inflicted tremendous losses on the, on the Russians. What did they do? They leveled the city and killed 80,000 civilians. Right. So, I mean, this is not to say it's, it's in any way you're going to be anything but a, a catastrophe for the Ukrainians. But, but in terms of what Putin wanted out of this, which was to put in a puppet government, control all of Ukraine and extend his authority you know, ac across Ukraine, it, it, I, don't, I, don't see, I don't see that happening. 
Where, where, where do you see this going militarily? Where it goes militarily is is continued losses inflicted on the Russians. And when when is the point when the Russians really tried to circumscribe their objectives? Is it Kiev only, and then and then and then east of the Dnieper River? Uh, and and of course, this isn't good for Ukrainians, right? Because what they'll do is keep the rest of Ukraine under their thumb and under constant threat. But mm-hmm. but there 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 has to be. Uh, a time at which the Russians realize they can't do what they set out to do at the outset. And then what happens in terms of, of, of negotiations, international pressure on Russia, how this plays out in the long term? Uh, do, do, can we demand you know, uh, you know, uh, safe passage for humanitarian relief. The next, the next eight days, you know, nine days or so, uh, are going to be important. We're going to know a lot more, obviously, because that's when I, I really I think the plight of the Ukrainian people in areas that, that Russia has cut off. Uh, is going to become quite uh, desperate. It's going to be a desperate situation, and uh, and 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 I think uh, you know we just don't know. I mean, you know, it's one of the it's one of the one of the aspects of war because of its interactive nature and because of the complex causality of events and outcomes in war. I don't think any of us can predict with any degree of certainty what's going to happen uh, next and how this is going to evolve. I want to endorse that. Anybody who tells you with confidence uh, that they know Russia is going to fail. Uh, really is bluffing because there is a scenario in which, after all, this has only been going on for just over a week. Uh, In the next week or two weeks, they inflict sufficient damage uh, to take out uh, Ukraine's capacity to defend itself other than through an insurgency. In other words, they they win, but it's a Pyrrhic victory. Uh, But there's another scenario in which they're actually unable to defeat Ukraine's forces. And the war then uh, grinds into a brutal stalemate. But nobody can be certain about that. And I hear radically different assessments from people with vastly more military experience than me. But there's more to this story than just the fighting. And this is where Professor Cochran comes in, because we decided we weren't going to get involved. The only thing we were going to do was to impose sanctions. Uh, that didn't work as a deterrent. But now we are enforcing sanctions far tougher than we've seen uh, in many, many years. I mean, this is almost like the sanctions that we imposed on Germany at the outbreak of World War I. So the other thing that is really hard to answer is at what point do the sanctions on uh, Russia's economy uh, actually impact uh, the Russian army's ability to keep fighting? That takes a while uh, because uh, they, they probably have sufficient ammunition and Russia is not about to run out of uh, gasoline. But, but there is unquestionably a huge economic shock being administered to Russia by these sanctions. And I'm not sure that we've thought through the consequences of doing this because one uh, possible scenario, which I'd give a 10% probability, uh, is that Putin actually is overthrown in a palace coup, not a revolution. That's something that's happened in Russian history before. If you're failing at war, you're you're likely to be out. Uh, And I think, again, nobody knows with any confidence if there's going to be a dramatic change in the domestic situation in Russia. One last variable. What about the diplomatic moves that the Chinese may make? They've already signaled openness to being the peace brokers. Uh, That would be a sweet win for them. After all, they really have the leverage over Putin now. Without Chinese uh, backing, his economy is in total freefall. So one scenario, and again, nobody really knows, is that we suddenly discover there's enough of a stalemate on the battlefield that Putin has to take an off-ramp 
but it's offered by Beijing. Now, I was right in predicting this war. I consistently said war was coming uh, from the very beginning of the year. I find it much harder to predict what is going to happen in each of these four domains. And that's where I need you, John. This looks like a massive shock to Russia's economy. Can you give us a sense of what massive means? Yes, it's big. Now, um, it, it is part of uh, what I find shocking, the, the lack of long-run strategy uh, on our part. You said quite rightly, sanctions are a threat intended as a deterrent. Don't do this or else we're going to hurt you. Uh, now we are turning to sanctions as a warfighting strategy. And usually the standard wisdom is, you'll tell me from history, sanctions don't work as a warfighting strategy. They're, they're part of what you do in a war. Yes, we cut off trade with Germany in World War I and World War II. But sanctions alone, common wisdom goes, doesn't cause a dictator to turn around, relinquish conquered territory. Look at, look at North Korea, Cuba, Venezuela, and so on and so forth. Now, these sanctions, uh, as an economist, these are much having much bigger effect than anyone expected, uh, in part because it, it turns out the reach of our financial regulatory regime is much deeper than anyone expected. You know, the Treasury this morning is encouraging people to buy Russian oil because <laughs> there's been a buyer's strike on, on Russian oil. People don't want to touch it because they're, they're worried that a couple of years from now, some regulator is going to come and shut them down because they, they touched someone who touched Russian oil. Uh, and it's really going to, from what I hear, um, since the Russians were unprepared for it in a way that the, you know, the North Koreans know how to get around this, uh, it is really going to hurt their economy in the next um, month or so. Uh, as one example, uh, Boeing cut off access to, this, to the manuals for how do you fix a jet engine. <laughs> That's going to, all Russian airplanes are going to be on the ground in three weeks without that sort of, even Russian um, uh, factories need foreign, uh, foreign imports. And, and we've essentially cut Russia off from, from all imports. So that's really going to hurt their economy. Does that <clears throat> in the, hurt them in the long run once they find ways around it? Uh, and does that stop them from fighting a war to, and I see a big tipping point if the government of Ukraine falls. Uh, and, and that, um, you know, back, back to HR, is that is that in the cards in the next uh, week or so? Once that happens, the chance for uh, a good outcome, you know, the outcome that we're hoping for, which is Russia goes back to its borders and we tell the world, you don't do this kind of stuff. Uh, then that is much, much harder, much less light. Then it's going to be just a question of how much do we surrender a horrible negotiated outcome and, and, and we go on to the next, which is, I, I fear, where we're going. So short version, um, sanctions very effective at hurting the Russian economy. Uh, long version, I'm not sure sanctions are going to stop Russia's war fighting ability in the next crucial month or so where we find out if, if Ukraine stays alive. And um, you'll tell us more about history when uh, we're doing the history party, uh, Neil. Um, I think we've over, so people are fantasizing Russia will overthrow Putin. Now it might happen and it would be wonderful if it did happen. Uh, but um, how much does hurting a civilian population really change political opinion? Uh, people were waiting for the Germans to overthrow Hitler for uh, a long time. It, they tried a few times, but it, it never happened. Uh, people thought the Germans thought that the Blitz was going to undermine civilian morale and cause uh, cause the English to get rid of Churchill. That didn't happen. Uh, so I wouldn't put too much stock on on sanctions as a war fighting uh, a war fighting strategy. Well, you know, it's possible that the opposite could happen, right? That that you know that Putin will be successful right. in blaming others for his own aggression, and and this is an aspect of the fight. That that uh, I think is is immensely important, which is the informational dimension and the need to reach 
the Russian people with alternative sources of information. And we ought to be doing everything that we can uh, to, to, to do that, to counter his, his sustained campaign of disinformation and, and, and propaganda. Well, HR, isn't that one of the schools of thought as to why we were releasing so much intelligence before the invasion, just not just to get into Putin's head, but also to find ways to get to the Russian people to inform them that, hey, your country is about to invade another country? Absolutely. To take away any of this, this you know, false justification, to expose it as, as false. And I think the, uh, the Biden administration should get really credit for that. And, and I, I think actually the UK government, Prime Minister Johnson, uh, I mean, they, they did a very good job in the coordinated release of intelligence. And if you, if you look at uh, what Secretary Blinken did in the UN, he just read out, here's what they're going to do. You know? And he just summarized everything. That the Russians were about to do. And I think that 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 obviously was insufficient to deter an attack. But I think it's very important such that Putin, um, I hope, will continue to lose any kind of support he has internationally. And and, and just I'll just ask uh, maybe Neil and, and, and John to comment on this. I think it has been actually pretty heartening to see how Europe has shifted its views, especially Germany. Uh, but then, but then also, it's been a bit disheartening, right, for, to see some of our friends internationally, for example, not vote in favor of the UN Security Council resolution. I'm talking about India, United Arab Emirates, for for example. So I think what, there's still work to be done to galvanize kind of the the world uh, against uh, against Russia. But overall, I think the picture has been quite positive in terms of the international response. We ought to point out, hey, you know, Putin wanted disunity, and I think what he's getting is a lot of unity. Uh, across the free world, and especially uh, across Europe, the transatlantic relationship with our allies in Asia, um, and, and and I hope I, I hope that that is sending some kind of a message to him uh, that this isn't going to work. It's he's not going to be able. It's possible right, that both sides lose here, right? The Ukrainian people are losing, obviously, in terms of the, the horrors that they're enduring and the the loss and suffering they're enduring. But but I, I, again, this is what I mean when I say Russia can't win. Russia is going to lose in this in terms of uh, in, in terms of of uh, the, the objectives that it had in mind from the from the uh, from the outset. Well, Russia, Russia, they're going to destroy Ukraine and sit there. Now, one question for sanctions is how long we're going to keep up. There's this rush of patriotism now as there is. Uh, and, and I agree, amazing to see the West come together. But when it comes to next winter and it's really cold in Germany, uh, we'll see how long uh, san- sanctions usually last for a while, but, but uh, and Russia will figure out how to get around them. So that's why I'm, I'm dubious about sanctions is the long-term strategy. I want to say two things. First, I really cannot overstate my amazement and admiration for President Volodymyr Zelensky, uh, who has proved a most unlikely but most effective war leader. I've met Zelensky. He's a most engaging person, but he's from the entertainment business. He's a comedian, an entertainer, a gifted one. And the story of his coming to power is one of the most unlikely of modern times. It's a kind of postmodern story where a man who plays an ordinary guy who becomes president then becomes president. And who would have predicted that he, of all people, would be such an inspiring war leader and so expert in information warfare that he's absolutely outsmarted Putin? Uh, It's been truly inspiring. But there are groups of mercenaries and uh, special forces trying to kill him right now. He's surviving assassination attempts on a daily basis. And we need to be realistic here. No matter how inspiring 
uh, his Facebook posts, and no matter how many emotionally uh, charged things we say in support of Zelensky, fine words do not win wars. And we have to recognize that ultimately, strategically, we are, in fact, in a weaker position than anybody wants to admit. Think of the UN Security Council. Farcically, as war was breaking out, the Russians were chairing the UNSC. I mean, I watched those extraordinary scenes with my 10-year-old son, and he was incredulous. This is how the liberal international order works, Dad? Well, the answer is it doesn't work. So what are we left with? China is essentially underwriting and gave the green light to this operation. That gives it significant leverage. NATO is filled with righteous indignation and has committed itself to a significant increase in European defense spending, starting with Germany. But it very possibly now will have to deploy significant forces to the Baltic states, to Poland. And so we're kind of back in Cold War II, which we are back in Cold War, which most Europeans certainly didn't expect to be. And here's the real strategic worry to me. This is not just about the European theater. Even as all of this is going on, the Biden administration is cutting a very sweet deal from the Iranian point of view to resuscitate the Iran nuclear deal. They're making all kinds of concessions to Iran. Why? For the same reason, John, that they want us to buy Russian oil because inflation is their number one fear ahead of the midterms. So there's this strange subplot going on in the Middle East, the consequences of which no one can foresee. But for sure, the Arabs and Israelis are not pleased to see what is going on in Vienna. And then finally, we are creating a profound dilemma for our policy in the Far East. Because whatever else happens, the Chinese now know we don't fight when countries get invaded by big authoritarian neighbors. We do sanctions. They're looking at Taiwan and saying, probably an easier fight than Ukraine if we can get our troops ashore. The Taiwanese are not the Ukrainians when it comes to house-to-house fighting, I can tell you that. But what do we do if they make a move on Taiwan next year? Sanctions? Does anybody seriously think we can do the kind of sanctions to China that we just did to Russia? Forget about it. It would be self-harm in terms of the blowback for our economy. So once again, fine words, emotive speeches, hats off to Zelensky. But we don't have a strategy for Cold War II. Well, That's we, what's we, need, we need to get one, right? We need to get a strategy. And so I, I think this idea that the international community will work together to promote harmony and peace. Okay, let's put that in the bag, right? That's not going to happen. Uh, let's, let's get rid of this idea that great power competition is a relic of the past. We're late to the game in, in, in all of this recognition. But what, what else can we learn about this? We have to learn that really hard power counts. As you mentioned, Neil, you know, what should we have done since 2014 to build up Ukraine's uh, defenses? And I, I'll tell you a story sometime, maybe over a cocktail, about how we, we got uh, and, and helped President Trump you know, make, the, make the decision to provide defensive capabilities to Ukraine in 2017, without which they'd really be screwed right now. Uh, and then and then, you know, I, I think we, we need to build up our defense capabilities. We've been operating under this assumption, right, that we can only just deal with one crisis at a time. But as we've talked about, and what you're alluding to in bringing the Middle East and Iran nuclear deal into this and the situation in Asia is that we are set up right now 
for cascading crises. And, and I think we're set up, and this goes back to one of our earlier discussions, uh, I think because of, of a perception that we, we lack the will to really do anything about anything. And, and this goes back to the disastrous surrender and withdrawal in Afghanistan. And I think you can draw a direct line from that to in August is when, is when Putin published this you know, 6,000 word essay that Ukrainian really, Ukraine doesn't have any right to exist. It has no national identity of its own. That's when he decided to invade was exactly at the moment when he was witnessing the humiliating withdrawal from Afghanistan. And you're right, I think, to bring China into this picture. China, as you said at the outset, right, they're posing as a peacemaker now. We can't let them get away with this. This is one of the reasons why, obviously, Russia can't succeed in Ukraine because of the of the second and third order effects. But we can't let Xi Jinping have it both ways, to now portray himself as a peacemaker and to, to call on all sides. I mean, this is the guy who stood with Putin before the Olympics and talked about a new era of international relations, which meant Putin and Xi Jinping, two authoritarian dictators on the Eurasian landmass, were going to reshape the world in their favor. That's what they set out as their joint agenda. We've got to hang that on his neck. And as you're saying, what we wouldn't put the sanctions on China like we did on Russia. Well, we got to, we got to decouple on our own terms because Xi Jinping, as you know, and, and John knows, he's going to de- he, that's what he wants. He wants to insulate himself from any kind of economic ramifications for his aggression, and 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 to, and he's in a race to do that. Well, we have to deny him the ability to do that through through restrictions on, on investments and export controls and so forth. But then we have to we have to get rid of this artificiality of so much of the world's manufacturing being concentrated on the southeastern coast of China. How did we let that happen? And it's part of the assumptions that we made, right? We're going to have a global community. You know, how's that working out? Global community. And and, and we can bias our, our, our supply chains in favor of efficiency rather than resilience. So there are a lot of economic adjustments. And John, I'd love to hear what you think about this, uh, that, that are long term. And I know that, you know, that you're a free market economist. But but hey, you know, geo, geopolitics right, has gotten in the way of that. What, what do we do now? Uh, in terms of a long-term so, economic strategy. We'll fight that that one some other day. Um, you know, our question is in the next three years, what stops Xi Jinping from taking over Taiwan? Right. And and you can have as much industrial policy as you want and build stuff at three times the cost in the US than China. That's not going to make a dent in that decision. You know, we talk about raising about reducing defense. reducing dependent, reducing oh. China's coercive power over us and others, because this is what Putin was was banking on, you know, is that is that his supplying 51 percent of Germany's you know, Germany's natural gas and 41 percent of its oil. That's why he felt like, hey, they're, they're not they're going to let me get away with this. And let's so, hope that let's hope the disaster of our energy policies and Europe's is is one of the good things. That comes absolutely. Out of absolutely. But, you know, raising there, there six, John, let me just make a plug here. There are six actions sitting at the Department of Energy right now that have had full environmental impact work done. They've been sitting there for a year. All they need is a signature to to rapidly increase U.S. infrastructure for export of natural gas. Okay, why are they sitting in the Department of of Energy right now? Just say nothing of banning fracking on federal lands, canceling Keystone Pipeline, all the European things. But um, you mentioned defense spending. I added up the numbers. Uh, NATO together spends 20 times on defense what Russia spends. Uh, So it's really not about the spending. It's about the will to use it. Uh, We have this immense military juggernaut. We could have stopped Russia at the border 
easily. If we had just sold Ukraine the weapons they wanted, advanced weapons, they could have taught, it turns out they could have stopped Russia at the border if we needed. Uh, I think for the near term future of Taiwan, the real question is what stops Xi Jinping from invading? And, and long term economic adjustments aren't going to make that difference. And so this is what I want to ask you guys. Um, where does this go? How does this end? What is a long run strategy for the US? I can't see any way but Putin destroys most of Ukraine. Uh, the current Ukrainian government, God help them to stay in one piece, but at best they're uh, reduced to you know uh, half of the country, or they're destroyed. Uh, you know they're out of power, in which case we have a bloody mess on our hands. Then we sit down at the negotiating table, and Putin gets some of it. We uh, you know his economy's in a mess, but nonetheless he gets some of it. We discuss slowly how we remove the sanctions. And that's kind of where we sit for a long time. Where, where is a path to what has to happen, that this doesn't work at all, that Ukraine is back to a, a sovereign country and the borders that we guaranteed in 1994? And maybe there's a, a nice way to put this. Um, where is the off-ramp? A, a, many times in history, we have failed by, by not allowing the other side some sort of vaguely face-saving off-ramp. The guy's got nuclear weapons, so we can't. it's not going to be unconditional surrender like it was in World War II. Uh, I'm afraid that the off-ramps involve Chinese negotiations and, and, and you know, a, a commission that three years from now certifies the partition of Ukraine and the, and, and the power of China. But do you guys have any... Great thoughts on yeah, I, given I want, the mess I want Neil, I want Neil to answer this. I'm just going to tee up Neil's answer by saying, I think you, you go, obviously, as historians, we would say, we can go to history to see what kind of the, what, is, what some of the uh, outcomes could be. I mean, is this, is this, does it, does, does Ukraine become Cyprus? Uh, does it become, you know, Georgia after the 2008 invasion in terms of a, another frozen conflict and some kind of a partition? You know, does it though become what we would hope is, is Montenegro when it was invaded by the Ottomans in the 1870s? Uh, and, and, and all the odds were against the Montenegrins, you know, but they fought like hell and, and the Ottomans withdrew. So that's what we would hope for. Uh, no, I think that, that I don't, I don't, I don't know if that's, gonna, if that's gonna happen because that would depend, I think, on the scenario that we've discussed and said that nobody can predict is what's gonna happen to Vladimir Putin. Right. What's well, going to happen it to the Ukrainians the to fight a partisan war is calling for the utter destruction and bloodbath of the country. It's I mean, you know, what, no, it's, it's, gonna, it's a bloodbath for the Russians. I'm telling you, John, look and at the, the Ukrainians on the map. Look at the scale on the map. Look at the amount of force that they have they, they have they, that they have uh, that they that they've committed. They can't do it. They can't secure the country. Now, what they can do is they can bomb the crap out of them forever. You know, they can inflict massive casualties. And this is this is why control of the air is so important. And your and the blog post that that uh, that you just had recently is so good because you got right to the heart of the issue. I mean, really, Russia's competitive advantage right now is control of the of the aerospace and the maritime domains. And uh, and, and if they if they lost that, I mean, the Ukrainians would have really have a, a, a fighting chance. But I'm telling you, the Russians cannot control all of that territory it's impossible with the not only the forces they have but i think whatever they with the additional forces they would mobilize right Neil. can we do some history here because what we are revealing is how incredibly diff difficult it is to foresee the future in a situation like this there's no model from political science that can help you here all you have to go on is history so let's apply some history we know that really from the beginning of the 18th century, with only relatively brief intervals, uh, Ukraine was a part of the Russian empire. We also know from his own statements that Putin thinks much more of resuscitating the Tsarist empire than of resuscitating the Soviet Union. 
Uh, and in a way, it's revealing that his hero is Peter the Great, and that Peter the Great's decisive victory that established Russia as a European great power was in Ukraine at Poltava in 1709. So historically, uh, it's in, in the ballpark of likelihood that Russia gets Ukraine back into its historic sphere of influence uh, because it would be very unusual. It would be a departure from hundreds of years of history if Ukraine succeeded as its people have tried to do in becoming a Western-orientated independent country run with democratic institutions, a member of the European Union and of NATO. That was the Ukrainian goal. And Russia has twice used military force to prevent it in 2014 and now. So I think one has to assume that from a historical point of view, the balance of, of probability is that Ukraine doesn't make it out of Russia's embrace. Russia in the 19th century, on more than one occasion, used harsh, brutal methods to impose its control, not just on Ukraine, but on Poland. And I can imagine from the example of history that we go through one of those periods when Russia's a pariah and everybody hates on Russia. And that happened in the 1830s. It was a feature of the Cold War. I can see that happening. I can see a situation in which they don't really uh, have full control of Ukraine, uh, but they're able to prevent Ukraine achieving its, Western, uh, its westernization goal. There's a difference, though, and John just alluded to it. There's a reason we're not in the 19th century, and that is nuclear weapons. To me, the most significant thing that has happened in the last two weeks is that a very slight threat of the use of nuclear weapons caused NATO to back off. And Putin has understood something very important. If we are in, in a new Cold War, we, the other side, the Western side, aren't really serious because we're not really prepared to meet nuclear threat with nuclear threat. When Putin mentioned the possibility of using tactical nuclear weapons, the idea of lending the Ukrainians uh, fighter jets from NATO countries was off the table within a matter of days. It also took off the table any idea of an air exclusion zone. So crucially, whatever 19th century fantasies Putin is indulging in, we are in some ways back in Cold War and we're back in a situation that we were in in the early Cold War with one important difference. Today, China's the senior partner and Russia's the junior partner. Whereas in the late 1940s, it was the other way around. In the 1950, a hot war broke out, but it was in Asia, it was in Korea. And we were able to intervene militarily in that war, uh, even with a UN Security Council resolution. Whereas now the wars in Europe and there seems to be zero probability that we intervene militarily beyond supplying the Ukrainians with hardware. But I think the big takeaway is that we're in Cold War II, but in this Cold War, we're not prepared to use nuclear deterrence against the Russians, and they're prepared to use it against us. Well, he, just, say, I, I just, just, would, go ahead, John. Go ahead, John. Quickly, gentlemen, we're we out of time. Rewrote, we just rewrote the rules. The rules used to be nuclear weapons are there, and we don't invade uh, and, uh, and overthrow another country that has nuclear weapons, but mm -hmm. you can fight in third places. And the rules are now, if I invade a third country, and then I threaten nuclear weapons uh, for in a third country, that you have to back off. And, and we have just acceded to those rules. Okay, HR, the final word, then we're going to go. 
Yeah, I'll, I'll just say, hey, that the nuclear part of this is something that's very important, not only in connection with uh, you know, the invasion of Ukraine, but also the threat of proliferation. Uh, we are right now supplicating to the Iranians and are in pursuit of an extremely weak nuclear deal that will give them cover uh, for continuing their nuclear program as, and it'll give them more resources to, to, uh, to intensify their proxy war uh, against their neighbors and to threaten Israel with destruction. So I, I think we need to, we need to really uh, learn from this situation and also understand what others are going to learn from it uh and and try to apply and i think that i think the lesson is you need a bomb you know and and um and that's it's going to be a much more dangerous world okay we're going to leave it there uh we will be meeting again in about 100 hours from now uh tuesday of next week our guest on the next episode will be congressman mike gallagher he is a republican from wisconsin he's a member of the house armed services committee he also served his country in the united states marine corps deploying twice to iraq so he has some very interesting thoughts on not just uh, what is going on in Ukraine, but also U.S. military involvement. So look for that episode very soon. On behalf of my colleagues, Neil Ferguson, HR McMaster, John Cochran, all of us here at the Hoover Institution, we hope you enjoyed the conversation. Thanks for watching. If you enjoyed this show and are interested in listening to more content featuring HR McMaster, subscribe to Battlegrounds, also available at hoover.org slash battlegrounds.